You are listening to the Pragmatic Christian Podcast with your host, Hayden Bruce. Hey everyone, today my guest is Wilson Garrett. Wilson is a grad student studying philosophy and theology, and I wanted to have him on the podcast to discuss postmodernism. He's a Christian who has been influenced by postmodernism, which to a lot of people sounds like a contradiction. We talk about why that's not the case, and we discuss some of the main thinkers in postmodernism, as well as some of the points of connection with other philosophies, such as process philosophy and pragmatism. If you guys are enjoying the show, please go over to iTunes and rate and review us. You can also give us feedback on Twitter at Pragmatic Christ, and as well as the episode pages um, at the website, PragmaticChristian.com. So without further ado, here is Wilson Garrett. Where did you grow up? Are you yeah, from Texas? I'm, yeah, I'm from Texas. I'm from, uh, it's a city in between Dallas and Fort Worth called Bedford. Oh, okay. Nothing, nothing really significant about it. Just kind of general suburbia, Texas. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where I'm from. And that's, uh, I live in Fort Worth now. Uh, that's where I'm going to a seminary at Bright Divinity School, which is a Disciples of Christ seminary in Fort Worth. Wow. Well, I didn't know that. And, uh, this is going to be very interesting. So did you grow up in the Disciples of Christ Church your whole no, life? No, actually not at all. I actually, um, I wasn't revealed to them. I wasn't um, exposed to them until I had a, a professor who uh, was a disciple in undergrad. Okay. Um, and I, my, uh, my academic advisor, who was the, uh, the ethics professor at my university, mm-hmm. um, when he was you know, pointing me towards which graduate school to go get my master's at, um, he said, you should really, you should really look at bright. You should check bright out. They've got yeah. a really good, you know, um, I'm kind of interested in philosophical theology and ethics and things like that. And that intersection. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it was just, uh, I went there and visited and it was a great fit. Um, but yeah, I, I was, uh, my background actually was in, uh, non-denominational evangelical, you know, just kind of your typical, um, I never went to a mega church, but you know, kind of when there is a mega church somewhere, there's always surrounding right. evangelical churches that are more or less doing the same thing, same theology. They're all yeah. kind of connected, you know. That's the kind of uh, hub I grew up in. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with Gateway Church. That's you know, yeah. Some people know um, it's the biggest, you know, kind of mega church in um, in the North Texas area, basically. Who's the pastor there? Robert Morris is his okay, name. Yeah. I think he recently stepped down or there's something going on with that. I don't know the details. Um, anyway, not, not relevant. Um, but, uh, yeah, but, uh, so that was the, the kind of context this, um, and what was particular about the gateway church culture was that it was specifically, um, it was evangelical, but it was also, um, it was also very heavily influenced by charismatic thought and mm-hmm. theology. Um, so experience of the Holy spirit and the gifts of the spirit, and experiencing those things in worship um, mm-hmm. was very much uh, emphasized as a part of my uh, kind of upbringing. Nice, yeah. That was that was my upbringing. I grew up in the Assemblies of God, which is okay. A yeah, no, I mean, yeah. Um, I mean, that's that's really just what 
most non-denominational evangelicals are. I feel like they just don't want to put a label on it to some extent. Yeah, I mean, that kind of makes sense. They they grow so big through a really charismatic preacher and mm. like big, you know, professional worship bands. And so yeah. like it kind of goes in that like musical artist, uh, ethereal oh, yeah, yeah. way where it's like, you know, very, it's emphasizing the feeling of the religious experience a lot more, no, which, totally. you know, it has a Pentecostal bent. But the reason why I was interested when you mentioned the Disciples of Christ Church is because I had just recently started getting um, into, I just learned about them, you know, mm-hmm. fairly recently. Uh, I started reading about uh, Edward Scrimner Ames, who is a Disciples mm-hmm. of Christ uh, minister and uh, philosopher, theologian, and um, I've been reading him because, um, as my audience knows, I'm interested in pragmatist philosophy mm-hmm. and stuff, and he was a pragmatist Christian. So I just mm-hmm. read his um, uh, a biography, an intellectual biography on him. Now I'm reading his unpublished manuscripts and stuff, and he's mm-hmm. having um, a lot of influence it, you know, uh, for me right now. And so I've yeah. been wanting to learn more about the Disciples of Christ um, because I, you know, I had no idea that a whole church tradition – came out of the Renaissance instead of the Reformation Mm -hmm. and the implications there are so awesome. Um, You know, and just reading about philosophy and, um, and religious philosophy for like the past, like 200 years, it's crazy to realize that people have been struggling with the things that we're struggling with now and thinking about the same Mm -hmm. things that we've been thinking about now, you know, the whole science versus religion debate, like this has been going on for a couple hundred years and way longer than that. And so to like, read people who are you know discussing those things that you think like oh you're alone in this you know in this whole conversation is 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 great you know c.s lewis talks about um like when you you know basically he defines friendship as meeting someone who makes you say what no way you too i thought i was the only one right and like and i find myself having that same experience with these writers and uh philosophers um yeah so that 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 just piqued my interest i didn't expect you to uh say that are you familiar that much with that with that tradition or um yeah the uh, i've taken the the history classes here do they very much go out of their way to uh explain oh, yeah? the disciples history and you yeah. know um i took church history to this fall, last fall semester so the formation mm-hmm. of uh the barton stone movement and how the disciples came out of that um uh, yeah it's a very very interesting very a broad tradition because mm-hmm. it's what I think is interesting about it is that it kind of has a really high sacramental theology in the sense that not necessarily that it goes to the full, uh, you know, the Eucharist saves you, but it puts, you know, a very high emphasis on, you know, these sacraments were things that Jesus told us to do in the sense that we're trying to emulate the new Testament church. We need yeah. to emphasize these things. Um, but at the same time, uh, being kind of, you know, in this kind of enlightenment, you know, kind of era, there's, you know, this um, just lost the thought. It just like totally went away. But yeah, in the in the kind of enlightenment era when there's this exactly what you're talking about, this religious uh, tension between religion and science and how we need to understand these things. And there's kind of this pull on religion to be more rational mm-hmm. um, and more scientific in its methods and what it resembles. So while it all kind of has this high, you know, maybe kind of conservative sacramentology, it's making room for, you know, kind of unitarian theologically, very kind of far left kind of heterodox traditionally positions yeah. that, you know, the church says these are things that we can still come together to this table over. Right. And that's definitely something I really admire about the tradition. 
Yeah, me too. I get the sense that um, from what I've briefly read, um, their emphasis is very much on Jesus and the life of Jesus himself on the New Testament and um, and symbolism, which would go to the you know the sacraments. Um, and they're very much about uh, all truth is God's truth. So <laughs> everyone's perspective, whether it be um, scientific, religious, or whatever, all has a say that. Um, which I really appreciate that too. And it's just weird to me that a tradition like that is out there because that's so different from the experience that I grew up with. And so to know that these right. people have been out there, you know, um, doing their thing mm-hmm. all this time. And now I'm finally realizing about it. It's just, it's crazy to me that like you can go, you know, most of your life not realizing that there's people right out, you know, pe- there's people out there for, you know, basically anyone like you can uh, like, I guess I say that just to say that, like, if you're going through, you know, religious doubts or whatever, or you have a specific emphasis that you want to explore, it's like there are people out there for you. (laughs) Like, you just have to look a little bit. And so that's been great for me. And um, I've been getting so much out of the pragmatist and applying, like, pragmatic truth and pragmatic philosophy and the values of pragmatism um, to my own religious life. I would say it's not too far-fetched to say that um, the philosophy of philosophy of pragmatism has in a large way like saved my faith um in many ways um but so you are interested you know we've been talking for a little while like through twitter and stuff and i know that you're interested in philosophy and theology and specifically postmodern theology um so let's step back a little bit what got you interested in like academic theology and philosophy you know in the first place so you grew up in the church um, you know, when did you start, um, getting interested in like, you know, digging deeper in these things? Like for me, I was very like ministry oriented. So I went to a very practical college to learn about like ministry, how to do ministry in real life. Like there was, um, you know, I learned all about like theology and stuff like that. I had very great, um, professors, but it was very, um, it was very emphasized on the practical side of like ministry and yeah. life as a Christian and stuff like that. So, you know, where, how did, you know, what led you to take the other turn to want to dig deeper in the ideas? Yeah. Well, I think part of it is kind of a, um, I think it's kind of a theological impulse in evangelicalism that in my experience in my own personal experience has manifested in the way that, um, the pastors choose to preach in the sense that I think, um, I think that there's, uh, there's kind of this pietist impulse to kind of locate the centrality of spirituality as this primarily internal individual process. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, so the, you know, the sermons are less about, oh, here's, you know, why we come to hard, you know, stances on doctrines and ideas and more just kind of little, more devotional kind of content or kind of genre. Um, so I felt like I was learning a lot about, you know, maybe being a Christian and what that meant, but I wasn't learning why, if that right. makes sense. So I think that kind of, um, <clears throat> I think that kind of curiosity, <clears throat> sorry, I think that kind of curiosity, um, was kind of what uh, created that initial interest was that I felt, I feel like there's stuff I'm not getting, you know, go showing up to church, you know, and I still feel like I, you know, I don't fully get this, you know, I, this doesn't make sense. And 
just being a, I'm very curious by nature, which I think is pretty indicative of a lot of people who study religion and philosophy. We just, you know, our curiosity about the most basic things just get the best of us and we yeah. decide we have to figure it out. Um, so, but I think uh, formally, the first time I realized I had an interest in philosophy, um, I, uh, when I was 14, I actually moved from uh, Bedford to a city called Decatur, Texas, which is an hour north and a lot smaller and a lot more rural, um, yeah. uh, completely different context. Um, but uh, that to say, I decided rather than choosing to integrate into a public school there and to go to a new high school, um, I would just do a, there was a homeschooling co-op that offered a uh, curriculum called Worldviews of the Western World. <laughs> and it's uh, basically very conservative, very reformed, very, I don't know, uh, you know, apologetic, apologetics, kind of very presuppositional yeah. The Bible is already true, so reasoning apart from the Bible mm-hmm. renders it invalid. Or, you know, any yeah. attempt to cre- critique the Bible is a line of reasoning that is apart from the Bible, so it's automatically, you know, less coherent or less reasonable. Yeah. And it's like this incredibly logical, modernist kind of words mean exactly, you know, words and meaning are one to one kind of way of approaching everything. Uh, so. So it's kind of the underlying, you know, kind of propaganda of the whole curriculum is to get you to be a reformed, nice Christian who is can defend your faith against, you know, all these different positions and views. Right. But at the same time, we read things like Plato and Aristotle and Calvin and Hobbes and Locke and Marx. And so it's like I'm getting this kind of very fundamentalist kind of education but at the same time, I'm also getting this the, just the canon of Western philosophy and theology to yeah. some extent. Um, and I think for most of the time I was in high school, I had very little interest in college. Um, and too. then, yeah, I just – I wanted to be done with school, which I th- is ironic now because uh, look at where I am. But yeah. Um, I think that as it became more imminent that I was going to have to do that or do something that was probably not what I really wanted to do or, you know, just kind yeah. of get a, get a desk job or something like that. Um, which is, there's nothing wrong with desk jobs. It's just, I would, you know, not my thing. Um, and, uh, so I, uh, started to look into philosophy programs, started to look into religion programs and, uh, at the same time was kind of beginning to distance myself from the kind of, uh, reformed kind of faith that that kind of curriculum had kind of been bringing me into mostly because, um, my main contentions with Calvinism at that point were kind of that, um, this is a, I'm kind of paraphrasing David Bentley Hart here, but he says that there's the, the kind of Calvinist retributive rhetoric. It makes a distinction in that, um, it makes a moral distinction in that God's morals are different than how a human would act morally in an individual particular situation. Right. So it's making this ontological distinction between moral apps, like the highest moral, ex- what is supposed to be the highest moral example and how a human could act to their highest capability morally. Right. So I, I basically just at the end of Calvinist theology and the, just the modernist presuppositionalist view, it just felt like. I don't, I can't make this make sense. Um, yeah. if I feel like if I told, um, 
one of my friends who was a Calvinist at the time, I feel like I can be more moral than God mm-hmm. in this view. And they didn't like that very much. Um, <laughs> yeah, it but, is kind of a, it's a weird thing. Cause it's like you have God and you can lump, you know, Jesus into it where you have this ideal and this, this, um, this thing to be imitated, um, this aim that we're supposed to be striving towards that we're supposed to imitate and be like, but at the same time, when, you know, when things get, inconvenient in scripture it's like well this was god you know and we're not god so you know right. like we can't really have a say on this matter you know lots of old testament stories um you know when kids are like wait this doesn't really make sense it's like well this is god but at the same time we're supposed to be like him he's supposed to be like the highest moral good um right. so it does create this uh cognitive dissonance so how did you how did you handle that did you um have you know did you have faith doubts um, through this process or did you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I felt like, I felt like after I had, after I felt like I'd kind of thoroughly problematized that kind of mm-hmm. Calvinist kind of dynamic of God, I felt like I was kind of starting from scratch to some extent. Um, so did you start from absolute scratch or did you go looking for other Christian um, systems that might answer those questions? No, I totally, I totally did look for other Christian systems. Yeah. Um, I would definitely, my first kind of foray into theology, and, and it's related to the um, the moral distinction that um, Hart talks about, is that um, I noticed that in the a lot of the verses about describing God's judgment, there were just as many verses describing God's judgment as restorative mm-hmm. as there were describing God's judgment as retributive. Yeah. Um, but our all of our notions of final punishment in the sense of, you know, eschatology and hell and for the most part has been that um you know uh that that punishment is retributive and eternal and you know just and good and uh but there's this kind of i think there's i i don't want to assert supremacy of either hermeneutic in the bible because i think you can trace both through the entire thing but the ability to recognize that both were there was meaningful to me in the sense that I felt like I could affirm a way to God that I saw as restoring the world rather than condemning the world, which is what I thought or what I see Jesus to be doing as well. Yeah. I had a really influential um, professor and uh, he was actually the dean of the, um, or director of the college I was going to. He really exposed um, the idea of meta narratives to us in our hermeneutic. And I know postmodernists get a little uncomfortable with meta narratives, but that was a huge um, thing for me to realize that you can't just isolate a, um, you know, a portion of scripture and say, this is absolute. There is a bigger story going on and, um, you need to widen your scope to include, you know, what came before and what came after to really understand that. Um, you know, so it's like, you don't have a bipolar God who is just really, really bad in the beginning and then really, really good towards the end. Right. Um, you have to kind of take all of it, you know, and as you read scripture once, then twice, then three times, you kind of start going back to the beginning with the knowledge you had at the end and things start to reveal themselves. Um, so your interest, so your interest is in postmodern theology. I kind of want to talk a little bit about that. Um, a lot of the people that listen to my podcast probably have um, issues with postmodernism, probably due to the main anti-postmodernist um, idea or, or voice, which is 
you know, Jordan Peterson is very much <laughs> against like postmodernism, even though he um, he does admit that they got some things right. Mainly the idea that you can infinitely interpret um, something. He just thinks that some interpretations are better than others. Um, <laughs> so a lot of people are, you know, and this isn't really a new thing. I think a lot of Americans have been against, you know, postmodernism for a while, but it is something that grew up, um, you know, that came into prominence in like the universities and the humanities and stuff. It has been a very powerful, um, uh, perspective or hermeneutic to think through. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about postmodernism and why it isn't the boogeyman that a lot of people make it out to be. Um, so who are some of the, um, like main, like thinkers that we are, you know, really discussing when we talk about postmodernism today? So I think, um, you know, I'm going to be, this is a very typically postmodern way to begin, but I think, uh, one distinction that we should make at the outset is that there's no one single postmodernism that, you know, all these thinkers rally around. Um, right. There's actually a, a lot of them disagree pretty vehemently, uh, vehemently, however you say that word. Um, I sound like a dumbass. Um, no, you don't. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I keep losing my train of thought. Sorry. That's right. We're talking about like the, you know, some of the big names in postmodern uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. philosophy. Uh yeah, so, you know, distinguishing between all the... Yeah, okay, I'm back with you now. Okay. But uh, Foucault calls uh, Derrida an obscurant terrorist in the sense that he always he makes his words so uh, uh, impossible to understand on purpose just so that he can insult you and say you're an idiot and you don't understand my writing. Yeah. Um, there's fundamental contradictions in Derrida and uh, Leotard's writing, another theorist, um, and... So I see all these theorists, and also another thing to note is that all, most of these theorists really rejected, with Le, the exception of Leotard, really rejected the um, the title of postmodern philosopher. Okay, um, they saw themselves as doing something very different in their own context, and I think for Derrida, that's in their relationship to uh, both phenomenology and also structuralism, which are yeah. you know, two kind of philosophical traditions at the time. And then for Foucault, he's kind of locating himself between uh, hermeneutics and structuralism and trying to understand communication and power and things like that. Um, so, uh, and, and I, I make that distinction there to say uh, the kind of postmodernism that I want to talk about and defend is one that I would attribute to people like Derrida, Foucault, uh, specifically uh, Emmanuel Levinas mm -hmm. as well. Um, in the sense that uh, I think they all have positive, constructive ethical projects. I think the the popular, you know, kind of critique that Jordan Peterson kind of wants to give is that these postmodern uh, philosophers, their uh, their projects are entirely negative. They are entirely destructive and not constructive. Yeah. Um, but I think in Derrida, there's this. Uh, at the heart of deconstruction, there's a sense that you can only deconstruct something that you love, actually. Hmm. You can't deconstruct something that you hate um, because deconstruction is about an act of care that removes what is unnecessary so that what is necessary can continue forward. Um, a lot of people equate deconstruction just with not believing things anymore or, you know, uh, 
moving away from their old ways of thinking, but it, to me, it's a very specific way of thinking. Uh, it's a very specific way of thinking and reading that challenges kind of presupposed appeals to power that are based on naturalism that may or may not be more socially determined than actually naturally determined. Yeah. So, um, and I think the kind of, uh, so I, I think the kind of political ramification to be drawn out here, um, is that, uh, the sense in the Derrida and Levinas, both of their philosophies were very much, uh, in a sense, a reaction to the Holocaust. Yeah. Um, Derrida was an Algerian Jew, uh, in France at the time, uh, he was not in direct contact with, you know, not the Nazi soldiers in, or, uh, for the most part. Um, but uh, Levinas actually was captured in 1940, and then he spent the rest of World War II in a German camp. Um, and this is where he uh, writes his book, uh, Existence and e- Existence. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's getting at the, this, uh, he's critiquing Heidegger in the sense that, uh, Heidegger's attempt to move philosophy towards subjectivity is too inwardly focused for him because he's in a concentration or he's not, it's not a concentration camp. It's a war camp, but it's a meaning, meaningful distinction. Um, he's in a war camp and he's experiencing insomnia and hunger yeah. and watching these people die and be tortured. And he's trying to make sense of his subjectivity in light of his training at Heidegger but Heidegger is so inwardly focused on the subjectivity it can't account for insomnia, hunger, suffering. Um, and it's this very kind of dense, vague book that's describing these kind of phenomenons over and over again um, that ends really with no great conclusion. But it's the basis on which Levinas kind of proposes his ethical project later in his work, um, which is primarily that ethics... It can't be, you know, consequentialism or, you know, any of the theories before, because all of these theories begin with us yeah. as the subjects. Rather, ethics has to begin in our responsibility to the other person. Yeah. Um, and we encounter the other person in the face-to-face encounter, that when we make eye contact with someone, we, are, we realize that we are the same and we have a moral obligation to uh, respect and c- take care of one another. Yeah. Um, so I, I want uh, to dig deeper into Levinas um, in a moment. So sure. if we could just back up a second, I, I, from what you just described, I, I, I think I see um, influence, um, maybe not even conscious influence from Derrida's project. Um, I really liked that you made that distinction of deconstructing things just to deconstruct things and, deconstructing things that you love that you're taking away things that are unnecessary things that are harmful in order you know for the thing that you love to grow to flourish i see that happening a lot um in the past uh like 15 years probably you know i'm I'm sure longer um you know in the church where you see a lot of deconstruction you see uh, the emergent movement and all these kind of, um, you know, what people call postmodern Christian um, traditions, deconstructing the bad in order, you know, but uh, what you said is really important is is that these people all love the church. All these people remain Christians um, and love the idea, the ideal of the church, but they see things that need to be removed, things that need to be taken away. Um, I think 
and I'd like to see what you think about this. I think what or whose um, whose project is starting to become more of an emphasis today is very much uh, Foucault's uh, project of realizing like power um, power uh, dichotomies and mm-hmm. relations and hierarchies um, and positions of power. Uh, when I talk to Christians today, and it's really interesting because. If you were to talk to the Christians, um, which is a very vague and broad <laughs> thing, but the Christians that I've talked to. If you to, were to actually go outside and talk to them, yeah. you know, they, <laughs> might, they might say. That, <laughs> <laughs> this is why we shut ourselves up with our books. Right, uh, exactly. But if you were to actually talk to those people, like I, like none of them know who these names are. None of them know right. that these people are influencing well, I, them, but they are. Relevant. It's, it's like not, in the yeah. It's in the zeitgeist almost where, mm-hmm. um, you know, which – you know, when I went through my own deconstruction and I went very, very much in the opposite direction of like supernaturalism and spirits and I stopped believing in Satan and like all these different, you know, very supernatural ideas. Um, I've come around full circle and I really believe in spirits. I don't believe in them in the same way, but maybe mm-hmm. more in like a Jungian way of these archetypes, these spirits, these patterns of thought and right. personality that kind of sp- you know, that spreads and, you know, they're memes, basically. They they spread without us knowing them exactly. And I really, it's so interesting that in the church, you see these memes spread and they don't even know who these names are that have influenced them so deeply. And I, and I think I see, well, I definitely see like Foucault's um, project. Am I saying that right, Foucault? Foucault, you can. Foucault. Uh, yeah. Drop the T. Um, yeah. So I see Foucault's, Foucault's project you know, uh, being very much emphasized. I just talked to a pastor and a writer on mission. And when he talks about the idols that he sees in the church, it's very much misogyny, racism. Um, he, he named nationalism, you know, um, you know, these ideas of our state, our, you know, our traditions are, you know, being, you know, thrown away and it's creating this fear response in a lot of Christians, you know, I mean, we can see that with the political debate or the political climate in the past like year and a half. But I really see this, um, you know, and Jordan Peterson's talking about that, the idea that everything is now becoming a power struggle. Um, what do you what do you think about that, that idea that's in the church right now, specifically, even though it is also in the secular spaces? But what do you think about that being, you know, in the church? I think it's a very positive thing that the church is finally talking about these things. But like, what do you think about like all those dynamics? I'm interested to hear. Right. Yeah. Well, I think, um, if you, if you, if you would allow me to talk about Foucault by way of Derrida, mm-hmm. I'll promise I'll sure. make my way there. Um, but so you, um, so, you know, for Foucault, knowledge and power are inherently linked. The people who create the knowledge, who create what is true and what is natural, they are the ones who get determined, who get to be in charge, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's Foucault's fundamental thesis. Um, yeah. So. Uh, the idea that history is written by the victors. Yeah, he takes it to its kind of philosophical, you know, kind of full conclusion in his work, kind of tries to retrieve these histories that we've lost to time that kind of contradict notions of what we think about particular topics in antiquity or et cetera. Um, but what I think what I think I've learned from from Derrida and from his um, from his uh, critiquers and interlockers, specifically uh, Gaiardi Spivak, um, 
is that Derrida is very, he's averse to essentialism in pretty much any sense. Uh, yeah. Linguistic, you know, he's work. He does wants to um, destroy the kind of pre- the appearance of a natural order, or a given order um, that presents itself to us as knowable. Um, so, one of his uh, so his to go back to Spivak, um, she's considered a post-colonial theorist who's mm-hmm. she's heavily influenced by these philosophers um, and. The, uh, the the move past Derrida that she makes that I think is so helpful and brilliant is that her, her emphasis is that kind of, she says, you know, I'm, I'm a woman. When I go outside, people see me as a woman and on site I'm essentialized. Whether I believe right. in essentialism or, or not, essentialism is a method of categorization that is ir- unavoidable, that it's going to happen no matter what. So her entire philosophical project is based around this idea of strategic essentialism and the idea that um, that ties in very heavily with the idea that our identities are not monoliths, that we are. And this is important in a post-colonial context for Spivak, because the process of colonization is convincing the colonized that, you know, they are what the colonizer wants them to be, whatever that is. Um, so for her, emphasizing kind of the multiplicity of identity here is kind of a way of uh, resisting the essentialism that she has to take part in um, because of just how the way the world works. Um, but it's never, we can never claim one identity as our identity for all time. We will always be a strain of, inf- several strains of influences and thoughts and things like that. So to circle back around to Foucault, like I said, I would say that, um, yes, knowledge and power linked. Um, but I think it's kind of essential or it's a a consequence that we kind of have to deal with because I mean, I just, this is fresh on my mind because I just wrote a paper about Genesis one and first Enoch, but those are two stories that are describing the evil and evil entering into humanity because the created and divine orders have been mixed up and mismatched, you know, um, in a way that they weren't supposed to be. Um, so I, I kind of think, uh, it just means we, we have to be very, uh, intentional and very thoughtful and careful when we're uh, approaching all the, the issues of power in an, in an ecclesiological, in an ecclesiological setting. Yeah, that being conscious of the way that we essentialize others, being conscious of the way that we carry our culture and our biases forward with us when we essentialize, that we're carrying all those things with us when we um, when we engage with others and and try to describe others' experiences um, the way that we see them. We carry all the all this baggage, and I was just talking to um, that pastor and and author that I was just mentioning. We were talking about missions, and he was talking about um, the way that Christian missionaries have um, basically carried this colonialism with them into other other countries and other places. And um, I mean, what do you think about that? There, you know, the idea of going, you know, for specifically like Christian missions, like going into places and basically bringing your culture and colonizing and essentializing 
um, you know, the quote unquote heathen, you know, that's the way that they were talked right. about. And or the savages, the savages, savages is what right. they would use, what, what these, the boarding schools for the Native Americans would say. Um, I think, you know, the, the problem with the tie up of Christianity and colonialism is that Christianity is often kind of what's initially being extended to these colonized peoples. And then once Christianity is there, it becomes, oh, by the way, Christianity is tied to all these essentially European ideas about very many things. (laughs) Um, So, and rather, uh, so there's the kind of that missional strategy that exists. And then there's kind of the strategy taken by the Jesuits who, uh, have for the most part to the they've more taken a synchronistic approach to theology in the sense that they've said this is our Jesus this is our religion and we want to find the ways that this is true in your experience and the way you can incorporate it into your experience of the divine without saying you have to abandon all of your culture to become a Christian, you know? Yeah, you have to accept the narrative that we give you guys because this is right. the truth and what you guys have been doing was just a muddy, you know, illusion all along. Right. And it's just, you know, it's just, it's the, you know, assumption that, you know, God is only revealing God's self in one specific place to one specific people at one specific time. Right. And if you don't catch that bus, you're screwed. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I just can't, can't go on with that you know no that that was the, probably the main um problem uh you know problematizing uh issue for me when it came to my own deconstruction was this idea of okay i'm a part of this very sp- specific pentecostal uh uh protestant christian tradition you have all these layers and our very specific little tribe just so happens to have all the truth and everyone else needs to really get on board on you know with our narrative and our beliefs and doctrines um otherwise you're all going to go to hell and Mm -hmm. what i really appreciated about my tradition is that that was like a serious thing like it you know it created a lot of stress for us where it's like we really wanted to go out and um, you know, and basically save people. Like we didn't take that lightly. Um, it wasn't just, we have the truth. You're all going to hell and that's fine with us. But at the same time, like I, I came to a point where I basically, you know, I decided for myself that God either has to be, you know, way nicer or way <laughs> harsher than right. I can imagine. Like he, there's no way that he can <laughs> just be fine with just our little group having the truth and, so he either has to be like way nicer and more inclusive or like way, way more exclusive. Like I really couldn't see a logical explanation for a middle path there where it's like you have this ultimate infinite being, he's either way, way, way more inclusive or way, way, way more exclusive. And so that kind of, you know, took me down my own journey, but, um, Right. He's either way more chill than me or way more uptight than me. And I'm yeah. not sure which, which goes back to what you said earlier about like, it, like God has to be at least as nice as humans, <laughs> you <Right>. know, <laughs> like at least he, as ni- at least for Christians, maybe at least as nice as Jesus. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with uh trip Fuller? Yeah, it, yeah. He talks a lot about that. Um, I like that a lot. There's also this other, um, just, uh, going back to another thing you commented on about, um, about reconsidering lost histories um, and lost narratives, lost perspectives. There's this uh, philosopher, Jose Medina, that 
I absolutely love. I don't know if you're familiar with him at all, but he's a pragmatist, uh, and he um, he writes a lot about William James's pragmatism, and he relates, you know, James to Foucault and other, you know, very postmodern ideas. But he talks about this. Um, epistemology of negotiation and that we we aim towards um objectivity even if we can't achieve total objectivity we we gain more objectivity by by considering as many perspectives as possible you know it's mm-hmm. the you know there's a rabbinical idea of the gem as you turn the gem you you, you see new uh reflections of light that you didn't see before mm-hmm. and right. so um he but he he really nails down the idea of, you know, and this is where like his writing on Foucault comes out is reconsidering lost narratives and, um, you know, tying the ethics, you know, into that idea that, you know, we are immoral, unethical if we fail to, you know, and this goes back to Levinas as well, if we fail to recognize the perspective of the other perspective of those Mm -hmm. who lost in the, um, you know, in the historical arms race, the people that have been forgotten, the people whose perspectives have been, um, skewed and biased and written in an untruthful way. When we don't listen to people on their own terms, we, we, we are actually becoming less and less objective than we would be if we considered everyone else's subjectivity and everyone else's specific perspective, which is really ironic because that makes total sense to me that if you get as many perspectives as possible, you, you are actually striving closer to objectivity, but postmodernists and people who consider what we're talking about, um, they're considered to be complete subjectivists. They're not objective at all. And they're not interested in truth. Um, but when you consider the different perspectives on an issue, you are actually getting more reflections of the light of truth than you would, you know, otherwise. What do you think about that? Yeah. And I mean, I think, and I think that's the fundamental thing about postmodernism is that it will always have two readings. It'll always have a negative reading and it'll always have a generative or positive meaning. Mm -hmm. Um, and what I mean by that, uh, I think I have something about this in my notes. Give me, ask me the question one more time and I'll give it a go. Um, the question was, well, it wasn't even really a question. I'm really bad at like forming questions. No, I just kind of rambled. Kinda, you, and you about about this? No, it was, it was a good question. I, I wanted to, re- I had a thought and I completely lost it. So. Um, the fo- uh, I was talking about the philosopher, uh, Jose Medina and right. his connection with, um, Jamesian pragmatism, epistemological negotiations of looking at different perspectives, um, right, un- right. uncovering so, lost histories, lost narratives in order to strive towards a more, uh, a greater objectivity. That it's not actually just, you know, truth is gone and farewell, but it actually is getting us closer to something like a, um, like a truth, um, but it's going to have it's going to have to consider more factors than just one specific narrative. There's not just one specific narrative that covers the truth of us of a given thing. Right. Oh, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I think you were kind of leading into, so, you know, so is postmodernism ultimately right. turn away from the possibility of objectivity or truth um, or capital truth, T truth. Yeah. Capital T truth. And I think uh, I think that there are readings of post-modernism. Uh, Martin Hagland is one name. Uh, 
probably mispronouncing his last name because it's German, but he's he's notorious for um, against the kind of reading of Derrida as this Derrida is this kind of spiritual ethical um, kind of thinker. The way that I, I see him, he's insists no Derrida is radically atheist. He's radically uninterested in ethics. He's only interested in the endless play of the signifiers that you know, never arrives anywhere, et cetera. So contra um, like John Caputo's reading of Derrida. Right. Okay. That would be, they are on two different sides of kind of an interpretation of Derrida. Um, so what I would kind of say to that is that kind of exactly what I said earlier is that deconstruction is not finally a negative project and not ultimately a negative project, but it, it ultimately concerns the reconstruction of that, which it deconstructs. And because of that, it takes an, a lot of am- amount of care and imagination. And uh, part of the reason Derrida is so dense is because he's the way he's using these words and stringing together, he's trying to push language to the, its limits, to reveal its limits um, of possibility, because right. he wants to kind of reclaim the sense of meaning that in his philosophical context has been so claimed by logic and rationality and science and reason, where he wants to say, well, I think poetry, art, experience all these individual subjective things are just as meaningful as your science and your rationality and et cetera. Um, yeah. Um, so a, you mentioned reconstruction and constructing, um, experience, truth, knowledge. Um, one of the, probably one of the biggest, um, critiques of postmodernism and I would even say for me, me critiquing postmodernist thinking, deconstructionist thinking specifically for Christians and the church is that it seems it's a you know, it's really in right now to deconstruct the church and everything, which, mm-hmm. you know, isn't a bad thing like we've been talking about, but the critique would be that these thinkers have failed to reconstruct something in its place, which, you know, allows, you know, anybody with a good idea or a popular idea to run in and give their own narrative that they want to push. Um, so, you know, what do you think about that? Like how, how using these strategies and tools, which I, I tend to think of ideas and philosophies as, tools for life and you know navigating this thing we call the world in reality like how how do we use these tools to not just deconstruct but then reconstruct something in its place and it doesn't have to be one monolithic thing in its place but like so what do we how do we live how do we live in a constructive way how do we start to build right. something after <clears throat> that well derrida derrida and leotard both they they heavily emphasize that the nature of their projects are impossible. And I think they, they kind of mean that in some sense. Hmm. But for Derrida, at least, the impossible is what is necessary. Um, and I think you could maybe tie this to kind of, you know, maybe you've heard, it seems kind of like a Facebook or like Instagram motivational picture. But like, if you can accomplish your dreams in a lifetime, they're not big enough, you know, kind <laughs> of like that, you know? Yeah. But on a, on a deeper level, like if we are really trying to push meaning, push language and meaning to its boundaries, if we're really trying to imagine the possibility of a different world and we're trying to, you know, for Derrida and Levinas to reconstruct our way of understanding after the Holocaust or, you know, a tragic event like that, Mm -hmm. um, 
I think postmodernism is asking a specific set of questions that will be very helpful to people who have been told there is one way of doing uh, being alive or doing Christianity for our, our purposes. Yeah. Um, and has felt very oppressed by that, um, that insight. So I think, um, I really think postmodernism is relevant to a lot of situations of religious hierarchy and religious abuse in a way that Derrida is probably not relevant to your average business major or right. secular person who's not in the church. I really do see Derrida as a religious thinker and that these issues, these na- navigations of meaning that he's trying to do are particularly, uh, they're ones that are felt in the religious experience. Um, whether he does that intentionally or not. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but it seems somewhat relevant. Um, <sighs> it didn't, it didn't give a reconstruction, um, method, but, but that's fine. You know, like you said, um, it's, it's something that it's, it's impossible. It's not final and it's, it's in process. Right. Um, and well, for, furthermore, the insight is that if, um, I mean, Derrida is to some extent coming out of phenomenology, which um, differentiates itself from empiricism in the sense that it says, well, empiricism thinks our experience of these uh, objects is direct and unmediated. Mm-hmm. But really, we're bringing our a priori kind of aspects of, you know, our preconceived notions into our experience of the objects. This is Kant. Yeah. You know, this is constant uh, epistemology, basically. Um, and... Uh, Derrida kind of, uh, damn it. Where was I going with this? Uh, reconstruction. It's impossible. Derrida. Yeah. So he, it's, I guess I was just, yeah. Um, that is maybe, maybe it's not even, um, not necessary. Well, it's not necessary or even maybe it's not even desirable for us to reconstruct just one thing. Is that maybe where you're going? Yeah, I think I was, I think I was going in the sense that, um, because of the, the ways these thinkers have kind of suffered injustice at those who have been producing truth and knowledge, that, uh, their, uh, their responses can be seen as a, a specific way to begin the very beginning of that process of reconstruction. Um, because I think, Um, At least in my experience of Christianity, I think uh, a lot of times learning is unlearning, if that makes sense, that, you know, taking in new information involves unlearning old information or modifying how we view it. And I really see postmodernism as a helpful theoretical tool for getting at that very first step of moving past, um, you know, whatever narrative you felt um, imposed on you, whether that's Christianity or uh, gender, hiring relations or, you know, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. It's at least a good strategy method tool framework to work from in a specific context. Like you said, these, these thinkers were coming out of, you know, the second world war and the horror that came out of it, um, you know, which led them to, you know, reconsider like, what, the hell do we actually know about the world and the way that things are structured because things were really, really stable. And then all of a sudden this humongous, just destructive force completely destabilized the world. And that mm-hmm. really affected, um, you know, everyone basically, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, 
nine eleven times a thousand of this very world mm-hmm. affecting destabilizing event. Um, you know, I can't remember who said it, but someone said there can be no poetry after the Holocaust. You know, yeah. like like the world will forever be changed. But I think that that's not entirely true in the sense that I think people forget things very quickly. Um, I think Mm -hmm. people are quick to adapt to their environment. Um, and I think that there's a lot of people who aren't thinking these things through. Um, is that a good thing or a bad thing? How much should we be aware of the instability of this ever changing world? Um, you know, maybe, maybe that's the point is that there can be no answer that will always, um, give stability to a world that's always changing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, um, you know, exactly what you're saying that the postmodern insight is that our, our responses to these specific situations must be context specific to the situation, you know, out of which it arises. Um, any, you know, our attempts to kind of impose a larger theory onto why something happens to someone, uh, I think really, uh, it it uh, it blurs lines more than it reveals things. Uh, you know, I think the Book of Job is kind of a good example of this, where you know he's had everything taken from him, and all his friends are trying to give explanations for you know why um, you know why this has all happened to him. But in the end, there's really no there's no answer. God just says, you know, I'm God. You know, forget about it. Where where were you? You know, who cares? Yeah. Um, well, that brings up a, a subject that I think would be interesting for us to talk about, um, the idea of theodicies. I think that if there was one thing that is a near impossibility today after the Holocaust is any kind of belief in a theodicy, um, right. that everything that happens is ultimately for God's good, um, that he is ultimately the puppet master of all these things, and he still maintains his absolute goodness, absolute love for you know his creation. Um, and I've been really influenced by the work of um, Sammy Pilstrom um, from Finland, who is a pragmatist, William James scholar, who talks a lot about this. Uh, much of his project is criticizing any kind of idea of theodicies, and he goes so far mm-hmm. to say that they are pseudo-religious. They're, there's a insincerity about them mm-hmm. yeah. um, by the religious um, thinkers and people in privilege and power in that tradition within Christianity. Um you know, it's an insincere thing that kind of puts themselves in a place um, at the top of the hierarchy because they understand, they know the way that God actually works. And I'm, and after reading that, that really helped me out. And that goes back to Job. And um, what do you think about theodicies um, in context with everything that we're talking about in the postmodern critique? Well, I think, I think as far as recovering kind of, uh, Histories that have kind of tried to be pushed away by mainstream Christianity, you know, universal, you know, reconciliation is definitely one of those, um, which, you know, I see as the um, logical uh, conclusion of a idea of a God whose justice is restorative. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think that the, you know, postmodern uh, philosophy and theology really doesn't think about, um, eschatology much or, you know, final reward and final punishment. And, the, and in that sense, it's, uh, it's not necessarily atheist, but there's this sense that, um, 
we uh, we as religious people have decided to do a kind of material analysis, we could say, that we're not, um, our way of thinking is not um, necessarily concerned with what's going on later, but the, the nitty gritty, the specifics of what's happening in our context now. Um, so uh, I really think that uh, one, one option that's kind of uh, allotted here is uh, Alfred North Whitehead, who I think uh, is closer to pragmatist than yeah. um, he kind of sits in there. Um, but he kind of makes uh, his whole, he kind of makes his whole um, philosophy up, not starting with God, um, but he, he gets to this point in trying to work out his metaphysics where there has to be this animating force by which it makes all of the occasions and the processes move and animate each other. And that brings about the world. And he needs this, all causing force that animates all these and, you know, creates all these processes. And he goes, well, I guess that's God. Yeah. And, um, because of the way his metaphysics kind of works out, um, he whiteheadian metaphysics has a real problem with omnipotence in the sense that, um, because it focuses on relationality and God's relationship to the world as being very intimate. Yeah. Um, there's kind of the the idea that power cannot have any meaning outside of relationship, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So um, if God is omnipotent, him, you know, creating 3,000 more Milky Way galaxies in like the snap of a finger is as great a display of power as him just kind of like, I don't know, throwing a you know piece of paper into a garbage can across the room. Like there's no... Right. Either the only there's no actual um, exercise of difference in the exercise of power or grandeur. It's just kind of a perceived thing on part of human subjectivity. Yeah. Um, so he basically kind of uh, based on this, he just rejects omnipotence completely. That yeah. God is not all powerful. We could say he's the most powerful being, mm-hmm. or the being with the most power. Um, but I really think. Um, kind of uh, Whitehead's a really helpful thinker in that his metaphysics really, it brings together objectivity and subjectivity. He's very concerned with the value of both in in every aspect of his philosophy. Um, So I think for someone uh, kind of searching for a a middle ground between a, a constructive and a deconstructive project, Whitehead is kind of one helpful thinker. Whitehead and also uh, Charles Hartshorn is a thinker who kind of comes after him, who, uh, develops Alfred's Alfred uh, Whitehead's ideas kind of into more explicitly Christian language, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, other contemporaries that do this are people like John Cobb or Catherine Keller. Yeah, um, but I think they are all very helpful in that they are um, emphasizing the role of subjectivity, um, and in the spirit of Whitehead, it's giving this, them this kind of constructive, generative uh, position from which to do theology. And while I'm, uh, you know. I may have postmodernist tendencies that make me skeptical of some of the finer workings out of, you know, Whiteheadian metaphysics. But I think on a general scale, um, I probably, you know, at the end of the day, I probably affirm a kind of process Whiteheadian view of things that God is primarily, you know, related to us and relatedness. And um, so I I don't think of power in a sense of omnipotence, but in that sense of uh, relatedness and influence um, rather than coercion. 
Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I've been very influenced by the um by the process guys and also by like pragmatism and those two like you said are very much related i would say that um the process thinkers are kind of like the metaphysical side mm-hmm. of pragmatism wherever pragmatism does get metaphysical they kind right. of are uncomfortable with metaphysics but when right. they are it is very much process um because it takes I think it was Whitehead that said that William James did for philosophy what Einstein did for physics. He basically applied relativity to the idea of philosophy. And uh, what I really appreciate from the pragmatists is that it is kind of like you were saying – like the best of both worlds. It's kind of a middle ground for like a structuralist or a constructionist way of thinking about the world and a deconstructionist where it kind of uses the, the methods of deconstructionism um, in its, in its ideas of like a continuous progression. And it's not always a continuous progression towards the good or it's things aren't necessarily always getting better, but they are always, something is always constructing at the end of our deconstruction. Something is always building up and being created. Um, what I appreciate from the pragmatists in their more modernist bent is that they all, that they almost all of them said that we as humans can have a say in that process, that we can (laughs) make things better according to our values. Um, and those things might not end up being the ultimate good in the end. Things might have on, um, you know, consequences that we could not have foreseen, but we can actually have a say. And if we're going to be, conscious agents in the world we might as well have a say and i appreciate that because it's very much an empowering way of thinking about things that i am not just the um the victim of unforeseen forces that i can actually negotiate with those forces i can actually understand things um to a certain extent and you know and i do appreciate that also from like what um, Jordan Peterson says you could say he is um, part determinist, but he believes looking at like mythology and like um, and Jung's work that we can actually negotiate with these unseen forces that we can negotiate with the nature of reality and the nature of the world in a way that we can actually be successful in it. Um, otherwise, what is the point of living? You know, we might as well all commit suicide if you know if everything is only complete chaos all the time. Um, and I really appreciate people saying that because I'm someone who can get lost in, um, in the chaos, in the pointlessness of Mm -hmm. what, you know, reality seems like. And so to, to give agency to humans or to allow agency for humans to not just say that it's all an illusion is helpful. It's helpful to think that no, we actually can have a say in the world that we can actually navigate reality in a way that we can be successful in, that we can actually make our existence worth the suffering that we are inevitably going to go through. That's empowering. Mm -hmm. And that is, um, very comforting. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that? You can even talk about Jordan Peterson if you want to, or the pragmatist. Well, I won't, I won't address Jordan Peterson directly, but I'll say that I think, I disagree with his the kind of assertion that postmodernism uh, denies access to um, the external world in some real way. I just think it's it's complicating the process. Um, yeah, and a lot of people are uncomfortable with that, and for good for understandable reasons. Um, but I think that uh, the problem is that. 
postmodernism, you know, kind of these theorists are trying to correct certain major assumptions of modernism to some right. extent. Um, and I think that a lot of these theorists, they get read, whereas when they're actually saying, hey, we need to move a little bit to the, you know, a little bit this way, a little bit away from this kind of certainty. Yeah. Not, not all the way. We're not saying we don't know anything. But we're saying the process is a little bit more complicated than we've, we've been, you know, we've thought it so far. But it gets read in that way of, oh, we can't know anything. Yeah. Um, just because once those boundaries are shaken of, oh, we can't have objectivity, there's no middle space to be navigated. It goes automatically to there's no possibility that we can have a meaningful experience or interpretation of the, you know, the outside external world. Well, to be f- to be fair to the people that cry wolf about this sort of thing, there are people who, who describe themselves as postmodernists who do speak that way, who do speak that we can't know everything. You know, there's a lot of nihilists out there and it is, it is the, um, I don't know if there's an actual word for it, but we can call it the followers, uh, um, principle, the follower principle, where it's like the followers of, of people that come up with new ideas always, take those ideas in unforeseen consequences by the person that originated the ideas. You see that with the Calvinists, you see that with the Lutherans, you see that with anyone who had, you know, any kind of major idea, the followers always take it into sometimes violent directions, but always, you know, they kind of skew things. And I would say that there are people, um, I mean, I've talked to them who describe themselves as postmodernists and influenced by some of these thinkers who, tend towards nihilism who tend towards Mm -hmm. um you know that nothing you know there's infinite meaning therefore there is no meaning and you know we're all just you know basically just give up right well yeah yeah, that's very fatalist but you know there are people out there like that and i think that um you know people on the constructionist side people on the let's just say non-philosophical people that aren't (laughs) assessing the differences between these thinkers um they see their you know they're engaging in pattern recognition and then they're just, you know, conglomerating all of the voices together. And so there is something to be said for that fear, you know, cause I'm not for any idea like that either, where it's like, no, this is all meaningless. It's like, well then what's the point? Right. Um, and I think, uh, you know, there's something you said earlier in what you were saying that made me think of something and then it lost it. Um, but if you said it again, I'd think of what I was saying. I'm sorry. <laughs> Nihilism, the fact that there are yeah, yeah, yeah. are followers of people that take things in other, you know, in more extreme directions. They're not as yeah. thoughtful because they're not, you know, they don't have any accountability to taking everything yeah. into account. And I, I think this is especially evident in um, when you you begin to see the differences between Derrida and then you begin to read his American translators and his reception in the American Academy. Yeah. Um, specifically in, uh, English departments. Um, and we see a very, there's a very different reading of Derrida that comes out of American English departments than what comes out of French universities. Hmm. Um, and the, the reading that comes out of English, uh, or American English departments is this kind of, uh, you know, the endless play of signifiers, you know, we can never, yeah. you know, it is this kind of, uh, there are no rules so I can do whatever I want. I can, I can set the boundaries. I can, you know, impose my own rules, et cetera. Um, and I think that's kind of, uh, 
indicative of people kind of like Stanley Fish or Paul DeMann or two literary critics who yeah. um, kind of influenced by this kind of, I think, nihilistic strain of uh, interpretation of Derrida, kind of like Martin Hagland is, you know, he's totally atheistic, totally opposed to ethics. It's kind of in the same uh, vein. Yeah. So, okay. So you're, uh, you tend towards uh, like postmodernism. You like postmodernism. Is it, is it safe to say that you are not the kind of, you know, person that says like there are infinite interpretations. Oh, now I remember what I was going to say, but you know, how would you describe um, your own, personal views. And of course these things are always in flux because, you know, we are reading all these different philosophers and trying to right. work through them. Um, so what is your functional personal belief at the moment that you're working through or working with? So another, um, another one of Derrida's interlockers, uh, is, uh, Hans Jörg Gadamer. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a 20th century German, uh, hermeneutic philosopher. And, um, his his German philosophical context is that it's uh, positivism is becoming very popular. That you know, words have these these very direct connections to meanings, and we can map out meanings in this very analytic way. Yeah, and you know, the emphasizing objectivity and the method of science and how materialist. Yeah, and we can if we can focus on this method, we can remove the subjectivity from the philosophical encounter and therefore it'll be objective and it'll be true knowledge. Right. That's his kind of context. So he writes this book called truth and method. And essentially his, this very, you know, short summary of the book is that method does not get us closer to truth. Objectivity does not get us closer to truth. And so his identification with the hermeneutic tradition then is that we are all, uh, reasoning cyclically you know we where we start kind of influences where we end up mm-hmm. so uh you know reading Gadamer and understanding him has largely been a reason why I've uh I would say if Derrida kind of saved my faith a long time ago Gadamer's kind of sustaining it a little bit right now in this yeah. sense that I think that he gives me a way to uh kind of relate to the tradition of Christianity um, in the sense that it's my context and to attempt to transcend it would be a dishonest attempt at achieving objectivity. Yeah. So I am, I'm comfortable in remaining a Christian because it is, you know, it, it is the stream I'm in at this point and I would rather think with it than against it, if that makes sense. That makes 100% sense to me because I've said very similar things, um, in, in, recent years talking about, you know, very similar things where it's like, yes, I've gone through this deconstructive process, but a lot of my current friends now are like, well, why don't you just throw it all away? Like, why can't you just move away from this? Like, um, I have friends who, you know, don't realize how, uh, odd it sounds hearing, but who are like, look, you're very smart. You're very bright, obviously. (laughs) Like, why don't you just, you know, keep moving forward away from this thing? And, and something I realized in, you know, the past couple of years is that, like you just said, I am situated in Christianity. I am situated within this tradition. It has literally formed my mind mm-hmm. and formed yeah. the way I think, like I, everything that I see in the world, everything I think in the world is being filtered through a Christian lens and it's being uh, referenced and connected to Christian stories and theologies and beliefs. And even if I symbolize 
some of those stories and some of those beliefs. And, um, but they're still what I'm working with. They are the, the hardware that I'm working with or the software that I'm working with. And I can only tinker with or only expand that. I can't throw it away. Otherwise, otherwise I become, I'm afraid of, I'm afraid of suppressing something now from my past that will come up in 40 years in a very, very, very big and negative way. I'd I'd rather, um, I'd rather bring along all that stuff with me into the future and slowly edit and revise and update it as I go. Then, you know, cause I see that with people. Like, I think that, you know, I've, in my studies of like psychology and um, you know, and the way that like ideas and beliefs and our, you know, the forming of our mind works is that like, we don't get rid of things that easy. We can't just choose what we think and believe that um, uh, I think it was young that said like, we don't have ideas. Ideas have us. Like I like that where it's like, I like the idea of respecting, um, respecting our biology, respecting our neurology respecting the ideas themselves enough to not just flippantly accept or negate things just based on a feeling, based on an insecurity, based on, um, you know, based on whatever the popular stance of today is. Um, I just have to think about things in slightly different ways as I move forward. Um, because there are, there are, how do I say it? There are, proper, not proper. There are legitimate criticisms of faith, of Christianity, of my tradition. And I'd rather take those into account rather than, you know, insecurely reject them or insecurely completely accept them and Mm -hmm. throw away my past. Like, I don't think that that's very helpful. Um, and I just accepted that for myself. I was at a, you know, a turning point in my life. I went to Tibet um, and it was kind of like the last straw moment for me where I was going on this trip and, um, you know, and I went to school, I wanted to be a missionary and I was going to dedicate my life to missions and stuff and things changed while I was in college. Um, and so this trip to Tibet that I was invited on was kind of like the God, if you're real, speak to me now <laughs> kind right. of moment. And, yeah. um, and the crazy thing is he did. He absolutely did. But the crazy thing was I still didn't believe in him. (laughs) So, (laughs) so I had this weird moment and moments on this trip where nothing about everything I learned and deconstructed has changed. But at the same time, this experience that I have had and was having and continue to have is very, very real. Even if it's not metaphysically or ontologically real in the sense that there's a God out there above the clouds in existence, like whatever it is, he is real within me. And it's funny that my, my leaving or my stretching of and deconstructing of my own Christianity has led me, um, deeper into like the tradition that I grew up with, with it, which is Pentecostalism, you know, the idea in Pentecostalism you know, and if you look at like the scripture is that, um, you know, kind of the history, God, you know, created the earth and then he dwelled, um, with man, then he dwelled in the tabernacle, then the temple. And after Jesus, God now dwells within man, his Holy spirit dwells within man. And that's a thought that I take very, very seriously, you know? So 
if God is at least, you know, this idealized spirit of humanity itself, which is kind of what like Edward Scribner Ames talks about this ideal, um, you know, God is, you know, and John Dewey also talks about it. God is where the ideals and the actuals meet. If God is at least that, then that's real enough for me. You know, like I, I don't yeah. need, I don't need God to be like either a pantheistic all or an omnipotent, all powerful being that created everything. Um, it's real enough if he is just like this ideal human spirit that we don't even really know how to talk about. You know, these are kind of ineffable things that philosophy is trying to at least give language to. Um, I've been talking a while. What do you think about some of that stuff? And I, I I did have a thought. Uh, I mean, I think, uh, I think the one thing it had to do with, uh, shit had to do with Imago Day and like the Jewish and Christian traditions. The image of God, imitation, um, yeah, incarnation. What, what, were you, what were you saying? I was saying that if God is at least the ideal spirit of humanity, then that's real right, enough right. for me. For right. Me. So that's, yeah, that's the, I mean, that's the point that, um, I think Feuerbach makes Ludwig Feuerbach, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of loop, you know, he's grouped in with, a. Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud are all kind of the four horsemen of atheism or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think Feuerbach especially, Marx and uh, Nietzsche also, but Feuerbach especially, you know, his, his critique is that, you know, religion is just humanity project, projecting their self onto the divine. You yeah. know, pers- the mere theory, right? Right, yeah. So, but I feel like that... Um, you know, he you know writes this and it's intended as this incredible critique. But to me, that just seems like an expounding on the Jewish and Christian idea of yeah. Imago Day that we're, we're created in the, right? The, you know, our, the theological anthropology of Judaism and Christianity makes this connection not as a critique, but it is a positive, you know, th- yeah. you know so I, the ability to kind of work with those, um, those critiques like Feuerbach, Nietzsche, Marx, I think shows a kind of... Uh, you know, flexibility of mind to be able to see, you know, what's being really located or what's being identified or uh, isolated in those critiques and trying to see what can be restored from them. Yeah. I kind of learned that um, no matter how, um, how new of a philosophical idea you may come up with today, the Jews kind of figured it out a long time ago at some point. <laughs> like right, yeah. uh, that was a- the fluidity of just interpretation in, in Jewish, you know, hermeneutics, just, they've covered it. <laughs> <laughs> they basically covered everything, which I really appreciate about like, yes. rabbinic tradition, um, that I'm very jealous of. And that, uh, I know like Pete ends, who's a Christian, um, mm-hmm. uh, Bible scholar, old Testament okay. scholar. He talks a lot about like trying to like, he feels part of his own. I don't know if he puts it in the language of calling, but what he's kind of trying to do in his own project is bring that rabbinical tradition into the Protestant domain and try to get Christians mm-hmm. um, away from defending their certainties as much uh, as creating a dialogue within Christianity, which of course there's always pockets of that. I think there always has been that. I mean, you and I are sitting here talking to each other and we're at least, um, you know, a, you know, we're, we are parts of that tradition. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think that we need to, you know, a lot more 
fundamentalist Christians, which is a derogatory term at this point. But right. I think a lot of Christians will do well to to create this dialogue within their spheres. Um, mm-hmm. I think it only helps. And yeah, some things are going to die away, but that's a Christian ethic or that's a Christian concept yeah. of Inno- innovation is kind of inherent in the uh, in the religion. Yeah, I've heard this. You've you've heard it said, but I say unto you, that's how Jesus taught. You know, his you know his method is that of innovation and creation and new, you know, new ways of thinking. That I think goes back. You know, a lot of people think of Jesus kind of in the line of prophet, but I tend to think of him more in this in line with kind of the wisdom tradition in that sense that he's kind of this alternative interpretation of Torah that's more cosmic and fluid. You know? Yeah, absolutely. yeah, the wisdom tradition is something that Christians don't like to think about, especially in more fundamental. Well, they like they events. like proverbs. They like proverbs. They like proverbs. You do good things, and the good yeah. things come back to you. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then they get to Job or Ecclesiastes, and they don't like they don't like that one. Well, no, that completely throws their um, interpretations for a loop. I right. I spent my my like senior thesis, like my big senior project mm-hmm. in college, was on um, was a hermeneutic of. Ecclesiastes and, um, which I picked on purpose, but also because my professor said that, uh, he would, he's like, there's at least one book that I would not recommend anyone try to tackle. And that was Ecclesiastes. Uh And I thought it was going to be because like so little people have like studied it. And so I was like, okay, that will give me more room to like kind of interject my, you know, what I think. But no, it was the opposite. <laughs> yeah. People have been arguing about Ecclesiastes <laughs> for years since it's, you know, since it's canonization um, and like, all, you know, no one agrees on it. But that mm-hmm. but that book really had a um, a profound uh, influence on me. I mean, obviously, I picked it for a reason. I was going through some shit at the time uh, in my faith. And so I kind of needed uh, that kind of attitude and voice speaking to me. Um, but mm-hmm. that, that is a book that... Um, a lot of postmodernist uh, uh, thinkers, writers, hermeneutic uh, Bible scholars have like latched onto because it kind of reinforces some of their ideas. Um, have you studied Ecclesiastes much at all, or no? No, not really. I'm I'm a I am more versed in theology and philosophy than than Bible, which is a, kind of a weird thing to say, but. Uh, it's just well, kind of how academic disciplines end up kind of lining up in the study of theology. So, <laughs> right. Um, yeah, no, that was just a, a, a side thought. I just, I love that book and I love learning about that book in context of the other wisdom books because <laughs> you have kind of a, an arc, you have a, con, you know, a constructionist. Um, have you heard of the Bible project? It's a uh, no. podcast and a website, and um, they put it this way, which I which a, was a helpful analogy for me as far as the wisdom tradition goes in the Bible. You have like Proverbs, which is um, like a constructionist. Here's how you should behave. If you do well, God will reward you. You know, it's um, what is it? uh, retribution theology. Um, of yeah. if you do well, God will bless you. If you don't do well, then you know God will punish you. Um, mm-hmm. And then. So, which is a helpful way to live your life, but then you have, so that's kind of like the young man, you know, the young, the naive young man. And then you have Ecclesiastes come in who is, you know, an older man who's, who's right, the pot- stage. Yeah. He, he, he probably got a divorce, which w- was really bad. Right, yeah. He had some, you know, horrible things happen, maybe some business failures. 
And so like he's seen the way that things can be arbitrary. Some of his business partners probably, you know, really came out on top as far as like, as far as he's concerned. And so you have this guy who's seen the arbitrariness of life. He's seen um, those who do um, wrong come out on top and he's kind of, you know, he got versed in, in a couple intro to philosophy classes and he kind of sees the world, you know, the way it really is. And then you have Job, which is kind of, you know, he's come through, he was, he's not naive anymore. He started off that way. He grew up and saw the arbitrariness of the world and the, you know, fatality of it all, the nihilism of it all. And then he came out on top saying, but at the end, I don't really understand everything. And it kind of brings a humility to it. But and what I really appreciate about that analogy of like the young man, the old man, and the older man who has some perspective, more perspective, a humble perspective, is that there's this kind of like narrative arc that each one disagrees with each other. So it's like just in the wisdom tradition alone, you have fundamental disagreement between the books on like mm-hmm. the premise of life um, where it's like, oh, no, if you do well, God will bless you. Actually, uh, nothing has any meaning. You just kind of live, eat, be merry, and then die. Um, and then you have the perspective of, but there are things in this universe we don't really understand. And, uh, it's better for us. Um, it's better for us to be humble and to have a a humble, healthier perspective on things. Like you, you can't just get on with the arbitrariness, the, the nihilism that like Ecclesiastes wants to bring in. And, and I really appreciate that. It's something I didn't really notice until it was like brought to my attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's that kind of thinking applied to scripture that I appreciate in pragmatism, um, which is, um, oh, where was I going with that? No, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I, I can't remember where I was going with that. It's okay. It turns out I'm, I'm realizing doing a podcast is just forgetting what you were going to say over and over. Oh yeah. 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 That, that's the art of conversation is just cool. like jumping in where the other person left off. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we can leave that behind. I just, <laughs> that would be just sure. a fun little thing about like the wisdom tradition that I appreciate, yeah. but I did want to get back to Levinas. Levinas is someone yeah, that yeah. you said that you have spent some time thinking about. And that's someone who um, has been, kind of a entry point into postmodernism or at least some of those ideas for me into that tradition um specifically because um of the connection made by well many many people including Sammy Pilstrom who is a philosopher a pragmatist philosopher that I enjoy who has connected the thoughts of Levinas and William James and other people have done even more with that connection um mm-hmm. because out of the pragmatist William James is really um he has a existentialist bent and he Mm -hmm. had, and he has always been, he also has a very ethical bent, which you see Mm -hmm. in his, um, even his like metaphysics and metaphysical, um, questionings, you you, use his pragmatism, which Sammy Pilstrom, um, talks about is that his pragmatism is framed by the ethical question. And he, and he would argue that for, for William James, his pragmatic test, what he tests things through is the pragmatic question the pre- or sorry the ethical test the ethical question so when he's thinking about um when he's thinking about metaphysics when he's thinking about the nature of god or the world he you know so pragmatism just to back up pragmatism says that all of our ideas have 
practical consequences, that all beliefs have a real-life consequence in our behaviors and our actions. And if you want to get clear or gain clarity on the meaning of your beliefs or ideas or conceptions, look towards the practical consequences. Look, look towards the behaviors that they lead to, and those behaviors will be the meaning for the conception of those ideas or beliefs. So for William James, he uses this ethical frame when he uses that test. So for him, how I believe, what I believe about God or what I believe about the world is going to have an ethical implication in my behavior. And that's how he frames things. And this is where the connection with Levinas comes because Levinas is, con is concerned with the other and concerned with our responsibility to the other. Could you talk a little bit more about the project of Levinas? You mentioned some of it earlier, but uh, maybe we can dig a little bit deeper into Levinas because I'm really interested mm -hmm. in him and then I can maybe come in with some of the connections to William James's pragmatism. Sure. Sure. So Levinas, he's a Emmanuel Levinas. He's a Jewish philosopher, primarily working. Uh, he is his work simultaneously is attempting to move past the work of Heidegger, mm -hmm. but it also could not have been made possible without the work of Heidegger. Right. So he feels this, um, and also an important thing note to you know note about Heidegger is that he was a Nazi, um, which yep. uh, is an interesting polemic when maybe we think about uh, you know postmodernism and uh, uh, political ramifications thereof and what that means. Um, but uh, you know Levinas being a Jew who is in a German work camp for five years when he finds this out that uh, his you know his main influence in philosophy was a Nazi he's kind of he's devastated. Um, and he, he feels kind of the necessity to take, um, which he had already been doing, um, but to, to continue taking, um, Heidegger's philosophy away from, uh, what he called Dasein, which is German for being in the world, essentially. Heidegger's philosophy is trying to understand things from the subjectivity of the individual's experience of the world that we are not we are not beings that are are separate from the world but are we're engulfed in it we're uh, you know we have an historically affected consciousness in some sense um so levinas uh he's like yes you know sure um but heidegger's conception of day sign kind of becomes infinitely inwardly focused it's always concerned with these issues of epistemology and seeing and perceiving and, you know, the individual making of meaning. Um, so then Levinas first kind of explicit critique of Heidegger is that day sign is never hungry, uh, which sounds kind of funny, but, um, it's, he's getting at the way that, um, the phenomenological tradition that Heidegger kind of wants to identify himself with, uh, for Levinas, for it to be realized, it has to be focused on not on these internal issues, but on what he calls issues of exteriority, yeah. um, which are exactly like uh, he begins to talk about an existence and existence where he's talking about sleeplessness and insomnia, uh, starving, you know, not having food and trying to describe these phenomenologically and make sense of them. You know, the method of phenomenology is that it, you know, it approaches the, the phenomena or whatever's happening and then tries to say, you know, what must be in place for this 
to be true. So, you know, I, I think I alluded to this earlier, but instead of, you know, empiricism, where it says, what is true about this event or what does this event reve- reveal? It's more what must be in place for this phenomenon to be true. What, but uh, you what, know, what, what, what necessarily must be in place for this thing to have happened or be true Yes, yeah. as, as experienced? I, I'm just clarifying as you go. You no, yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Um, I mean, that's so, um, so further, kind of further along in developing uh, Levinas's ethical philosophy after existence and existence, um, he becomes one of the issues of exteriority that he kind of, he locates the ethical endeavor in is in that the human face to face encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, and for him, that is the ultimate site of ethics is the human face that, um, if we are to be motivated to right action, it involves looking the other person in the eye and recognizing the, you know, their humanity in the way that we are, um, more the same than we're different in the way that we are, uh, the way that we're mutually responsible for each other. Um, yeah. you know, he's kind of, Levinas is more connected to his Jewish, um, theological roots than Derrida is, you know, he's very much working in this kind of, you know, uh, where was I going with that? It had to do with Cain and Abel. Is he more explicit about his Jewish right, right, tradition? Yes. Yeah, because uh, it's uh, so you know his philosophy is kind of you know the Cain. Uh, um, Cain asks God, you know, am I my brother's keeper? And, right. You know, the answer of the Bible and then Levinas is, yes, you are. Um, you are your brother's keeper. You have you responsibility, res- yeah. You have responsibility for you, the um, the other person. Um, and that's, you know, he develops, he develops that face, you know, the, the, uh, all the contours and details of that face-to-face encounter throughout his philosophy. But that's really the core of his ethical encounter is that we cannot locate it as some, in consequences or in some kind of ideal or something that's within ourselves, but it's in when we see the face of someone who is in need um, yeah. and we have the possible, the option and possibility to respond, which I think is a distinctly Christian view yeah. of the situation as well. Yeah. Can you connect some of that more with like, um, I mean, it seems, uh, it, le- it seems very obvious to me, the connection with Christianity and that kind of idea. I mean, I think you could very, you know, you could easily make a case that that Jesus was very much, you know, operating from the same kind of ethic. Could you expand a little bit more on that? I'm sure you've thought about it. Yeah. Well, I think, um, like I said, I think of Jesus, uh, Jesus relationship to Torah, you know, the law more along the lines of, um, the wisdom tradition than anything else. So, uh, I really think, uh, his kind of relationship to the Torah. Um, you could kind of see it, uh, in one of the, um, excluded books from our Protestant Bibles is a Sirach that explains how wisdom, which is kind of identified with Torah. It's kind of a parallel to Torah in the text, how wisdom came to be found in Jerusalem in Israel, basically. Um, but uh, before it kind of gets to that point, uh, wisdom kind of narrating the stories as, you know, I am found in all places in all people. Yeah. Um, and it's this kind of uh, really popular in Jesus time and second temple Judaism. There's this kind of apocalyptic dualism of um, 
there's good and bad. We know who's good. We know who's you know bad. And usually it's because they're keeping the law in the Torah in the way that we think they are. So right. then Jesus comes into this scene where his you know reaction to this is very much, you know, the, the fulfilling of the Torah never had to do with these specific, you know, individual commands, but rather the commands are witness to a more eternal wisdom that's accessible to all people. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, I like, I just really like that, that ethic. Um, and it's very pronounced in, like I said, William James's pragmatism. And I would consider emphasized for me in my own, um, what I would call my own pragmatism is, um, that being the test for, um, I would say truth because I'm working with a definition of truth from the pragmatist tradition. Um, you know, I think it was Jose Medina again, he, he edited an anthology on like truth, you know, philosophy of truth, um, Mm. throughout the last, like, you know, starting with James and Nietzsche. And he was saying that, um, he made the, the argument that Nietzsche and James were really the two first philosophers to really, um, to really talk about for the first time in a real way, uh, the value of truth, that truth is not just this thing that exists, but that every time we speak of truth, we are coming from the premise of a value that what is true is relative to a value that we're bringing to it. And both of them really, um, discuss that in, in fairly different ways, but they both did that. Um, and that has helped me greatly because I would say that in general, I'm working towards an ideal of truth. Um, capital T, but it is an ideal. Mm. I would never, I would never think that I ever have all of the capital T truth on a given situation. Um, I think humility is a little important in these kind of conversations. Um, Mm -hmm. so I realize that it's okay for me to be honest about the values that I'm working from and to filter things through those values. One of those values, for example, is the ethical test. So to be ethical to the other, which I think was um, ingrained in my own personality and um, being through my Christian tradition. So the mm-hmm. way that the Christ ideal or um, or the spirit of Christ is still very much ingrained in my own being is that ethical test, uh, that very Levinasian um value of responsibility to the other. So I, I, I test what I believe to be true through that ethical test. So what I think and what I believe is going to lead me to act in a way to, um, to view the world and act within it in a certain given way. Um, cause what we believe about the world has implications and how we navigate through it. If I believe Great. that there is a wall in front of me, I'm not going to think that I can just walk through that wall. I'm going to look for what I believe to be a door, you know, a passageway Mm -hmm. through that barrier. And so our beliefs have real implications on the way that we structure the world. You know, you can say that, um, you know, I'm sure there's a connection to like Kant and a priori is, um, that we, you know, and, um, I think the phenomenologists, uh, talk about this as well. The things that we, um, what our mind puts out into the world uh, has an effect on the way, you know, how we structure the world has mm-hmm. an implication on our actions and 
Um, yeah, the, the, the relationship between um, the relationship between our perceiving a phenomena and the actual object itself as it exists in the real world, it's not a relationship that goes one way. They inform each other. Right. Our, we perceive the phenomena that informs our perception. Our perception then in turn informs general perception of that object in a more or it can. It, yeah. it has potential to. Um, but yeah, it's a you know, very similar parallel. Yeah, so it's like the world is an ongoing updating schema where, you know, it's something that's constructing but then being deconstructed and revised in the process of continuing to construct and reconstruct. It's this thing that's being constantly reinforced by all the factors involved. Um, so I, I, I start from the Christian ethical test of how are my ideas and beliefs and, and thought structures and processes, how are these things influencing my behavior, um, on those around me? And so for William James, um, he, he, he starts, he opens up his, his pragmatism with, with the concept of evil and death and suffering. Um, and, he jumps into his metaphysics and questioning metaphysics through that ethical test. So is the idea, and this is where earlier I brought up theodicies. This is where theodicies come um, into play. So my belief about God and my belief about the world is going to have an implication on how I treat others or how I view God as in relation to others. And um, if I believe that God is okay with suffering, well, that's, that fails my ethical test. Um, whatever God I'm aiming towards, and so by the nature of me aiming towards that ideal, that's going to enforce on the human being I become and the personality that I develop, the God that I believe in and idealize is going to have an effect on me. So if the God I believe in and idealize doesn't give two shits about the way that the way he created the world has an effect on the people that suffer from it. Um, if I believe in a God like that, that's going to have an implication on the way that I treat others. Um, Cause if the nature of the world and the idealized nature of the world, which you could say is God that, is going to have an implication on the forming of my personality. Um, mm -hmm. If I believe in a kind of God that doesn't care about others, the other, then I'm going to develop into a person that says it's okay if some people suffer and it's okay right. if my actions uh, have an implication that leads other people to suffer. Um, it's a very selfish way to, to navigate through the world. And that all sounds well, I'm sure that all sounds complicated. I'm, I'm, I'm working yeah, on I'm, these I'm things. I'm yeah. working on these things. Um, but to a, to an, to, I don't want to say average. Um, there's almost no way, proper way to talk about these things without offending people, but to talk right. about like a typical. a typical Christian, um, you know, the kind of, <laughs> again, <laughs> um, typical church going, yeah, you know, it's like, they think that, we're trying to overcomplicate things by talking about this, but it has a real implication because they mm -hmm. are idealizing a God that, you know, let's just, let's tackle hell. They are idealizing <laughs> a God that is okay with sending people to eternal torment. And, right. and they are choosing and defending and fighting to defend a conception of God who, who is okay with a specific um, kind of eternal torment that is everlasting conscious, um, you know, the most brutal things that you could possibly conceptualize. It's a hundred times worse than that. They're okay mm -hmm. with idealizing a God like that. And I think that that 
necessarily, you know, maybe that's a phenomenological uh, uh, conception that it necessarily also, this is a pragmatist idea as well, that it necessarily informs the way that those Christians are becoming, the way that they're growing, the way that they are developing in their personalities and in the way that they carry themselves in the world. So one of the things that I struggled with in Christianity that became a problem for me is that cognitive dissonance of realizing that the God that we strive to, that we strive for, aim at, and worship has a direct relation to the people that we become and that we kind of, we become, um, like the God that we serve and the God that we believe in. Um, you know, I think I first heard it from Alan Hirsch, who is like a missiologist, uh, popular, um, popular theologian, um, theology writer. He, he has this whole bit about like how Jesus looks the way Jesus looks like the people who believe in him, you know? So wherever you go, if you ask people, what does God look like? Right, right, what is yeah. God like? He's going to look like those people. You know, it's the, you know, there's a white Jesus and a black Jesus and a, uh, a native American G, uh, Jesus and hippie Jesus and militant Jesus. Um, you know, and that goes back to the mirror theory, but it really says so much more, you know, the way that Jesus looks to us says way more about ourselves and just that fact that you can go around and Jesus looks like the people that you ask that, you know, that you ask, I feel like that is at least evidence supporting the idea that the God you believe in is the God that, that becomes of you, <laughs> you know, yeah, um, I've rambled on long enough and I don't even know where I was going with that, but, uh, what do you think about some of that stuff? I know we talked about some of these things already, but the idea that all of our metaphysical ideas and beliefs have ethical consequences. Um, what do you think about that? I mean, I think it's, this is, uh, Derrida is uh, engaged in something called speech act theory, which is, you know, yeah. very similar, very related. Um, but it, essentially what it is, is that, you know, our, our words are uh, actually a call to action. All of them, you know, whatever we're saying, we're implying that, you know, something is, you know, I'm trying to bring something about with these words into the physical realm yeah. that is not just linguistic. There's a linguistic ontological boundary that's being crossed every time that I speak. Yes, the logos. If, we actually yeah. create the world through our words and we bring forth a certain reality through those words. Right. So he, the speech act theory is very much, you know, concerned with the same ethical tension and uh, specifically in speech. But, you know, it's the same thing that, you know, what we the speech we use will, uh, depending on who we are and who we're influencing and who's listening to us, will absolutely determine the way those people are shaped and formed and how they think it's acceptable to act or not act and so on. So yeah. I think there's definitely the same impulse. In, uh, and it, uh, speech act theory isn't a postmodern explicitly idea. It's just something Derrida also uh, partakes in. Yeah, I'm not sure if it originated with, um, with Austin, um, yeah, but I, I, I was going to say, I think it's a more analytic theory. I think he really developed philosophical. it. Yeah. It's more analytic philosophy than continental, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is. And it is, you know, Austin, um, he mentions pragmatism, but was like, I'm not a pragmatist, but a lot of pragmatists have linked on to him because you are right. doing something with your words. You know, your words mm -hmm. are not just words for the sake of words, but your words are doing something. Um, right. You're trying to accomplish something with your words and the meaning of your words are, is the 
practical consequences that those words bring forth. And so you could say that like the pragmatic meaning of our words is the reality that we leave behind at the end of our last word um, of a statement, which I think is an interesting idea to ponder, which is the first time I was thinking about that actually. So um, I'm kind of, I'm going to think about that more later, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, but we are actually coming to um, our time limit. I really enjoy talking to you because I don't really have anyone around to really engage with like someone who is actually familiar with like postmodern theology that isn't already biased against it. Um, and like, you know, one of my, um, you know, one of my values is that there's something good in everyone. There's something good in everyone's thoughts. Um, and you know, I, I started this podcast out of, you know, um, after the social, through the social interaction with a group called the mixed mental arts, they have a podcast and a Facebook group and stuff. Um, and the idea is that, you know, using the analogy of mixed mental arts, um, you find out what really works by applying all these different martial arts, you know, within the ring and you find out, you know, what's the good from all these different traditions. And so I really believe in that. I really believe that there is something good in, um, you know, in even very, um, even very uh, different traditions, different ideas, different um, philosophies and whatnot. Um, And I'm interested in finding the good and bringing forth, you know, the good. And um, even with people's religious beliefs and actions and traditions, I'm trying to construct um, or, or figure out a kind of common faith, which was something that John Dewey was interested in. It's like, what is the religious impulse and the religious, um, thing, the good, the, um, the true in all these different traditions and experiences and stuff. I think William James was interested in something like that too. And so I, you know, I always, um, I always knew that there was a lot of good within postmodern philosophy. And like you said, that's not, you know, one overall agreeing, you know, monolithic conception. There's, there's people that are described as postmodernists and they all have different projects. Like you said, I really like that, that conceptualization of projects that everyone is working with a different motivation. Um, and there are, there are points of contact and connection, but they're not all in agreement. Um, there's no grand conspiracy, um, which, which a lot of people think there is. And so I really appreciated having you come on to kind of talk about what those different projects are. I mean, I don't think anyone listening to this podcast would, would reject the project of say Levinas on, you know, the ethical, um, responsibility to the other. I think everyone kind of knows that. I mean, that's the only way that human societies function and work in this, in any kind of successful way is, um, you know, an emphasis on the ethical. Um, so I really appreciate you coming on just to, um, to conclude this. Is there, is there any like one thing, maybe it's a pet peeve or something that you just want to set straight, um, about people's perceptions about, postmodernism that you would want to end with or be like a last word, or maybe it's even just something that you would like to put out into the world through your speech. Sure. Um, I guess I'll, I'll say one, one thing about postmodernism is that, um, for me, the link between postmodernism and this kind of authoritarian Marxism that I think, uh, the, you know, theory that's being, uh, 
posited by he who shall remain nameless at the moment. <laughs> um, and I think that um, really just when, when, I, uh, when I look at the most helpful and the most interesting critiques of postmodernism, um, I usually see them uh, coming from the sides of Marxists, actually. Um, an example of this would be Jürgen Habermas. Um, he very much wants to kind of redeem modernity as a, as a kind of a, a medium which has the possibility for communicative action on which, and for him, communicative action is what, you know, democracy is based on. So yeah. um, he's, you know, he's, engaged, he's critiquing postmodern, he's granting... Um, some of postmodernism tenets that, you know, reason has kind of failed in some sense, but he's saying, okay, how can we reconstruct that reason? And then also at the same time, there's also uh, conservative thinkers who uh, take on uh, postmodernism. Two examples would be uh, James K.A. Smith and David Bentley Hart. Um, They both kind of, uh, they play with those themes, James K.A. Smith, especially, um, but they're, you know, they, they're very conservative theologically. They, you know, uh, you know, David or uh, James K. A. Smith is, has a very high view of Scripture, very high view of Revelation, and he doesn't think his engagement with Derrida or Leotard or any of those things uh, is a hindrance for that. But actually, it it enables and uh, it clears space for thought on these issues. Um, yeah, I guess that's the last thing I'd say. Yeah, that's very similar to. Um a uh, large motivating factor for me with um, the podcast and my website um, is the, trying to clear the, the mischaracterizations of pragmatism because in a very, very similar way you know, at, to the way that people are viewing postmodernism and connecting it to Marxism, um, but then in reality, Marxists are critiquing postmodernism. Um, in, in a very similar way, people view pragmatism as basically the same thing as postmodernism basically whatever whatever works is true for you and that's all that matters it's very much um you know whatever leads me to get the pleasure and success that i'm looking for that is what works that is what true and that can be different for everyone but that couldn't be further from the truth from like what the actual pragmatists are all actually discussing none of them are just a flippant subjectivist you know you know, truth is relative thinker. They're all working seriously and taking objectivity, subjectivity, relativity, and objectivity seriously and trying to work out those things, um, you know, in regards to the way reality actually works, you know, according to the way that they see it and the way that people, you know, other people see it. They're actually taking these things seriously. And I, I feel like the the flippant um criticizers of these ideas um are really the ones that aren't taking these ideas seriously at all you know and and they say that pragmatism or postmodernism doesn't take truth seriously but it's really them who aren't taking any of these ideas seriously because there's a there's a real earnest and i would say sincere reason why these labels and these words um are are problems for people there's a sincerity to um you know, what philosophers are trying to do, um, because the world and reality is not simple. You can't just take one factor and interpret the world through it. You can, but you're going to be vastly wrong about how the world actually is. And so, um, yeah, I guess that's just my pet peeve is the way that people, uh, kind of take an absolute stance on things and, 
in their criticism of people not taking their ideas seriously, they're really not taking seriously any of the, of these serious right. conceptions and ideas. Um, I mean, even just capital T truths, objectivity and subjectivity, you can meditate on for the rest of your life and you will not come to a final answer on any of them because these are things that, um, these are very complicated things that you and I are uh, are continuing to work through, but uh, probably we'll never find the answers to. But that's why these conversations are interesting and important because yeah. they help us they help us think about the world, they help us think about our traditions and our our faith in a way that is sincere. And I I choose sincerity and authenticity over having final answers any day. Um, so yeah, I guess we can uh, end it on that. I really enjoyed having you on um uh, did you start a uh, a blog you have a blog right do you want to promote yeah, that I, do, I do have a blog it, it has one post on it which <laughs> is uh you know I'm, I'm in grad school so a lot of my writing and reading energy goes towards that at the moment um but it's summer i might i might uh, get something out there but uh it's it's margins of theology.wordpress.com if if anyone well now you have a bunch of people that keep you accountable to it uh so you better start yeah. writing and get stuff yeah. out there i mean yeah i figure I mean, I'm an academic for a reason. I, I assume after two weeks of, you know, I just finished a, a final paper last night. So I assume after two or three weeks of being out of it, I'm going to get, you know, feel the impulse to start writing and reading something again. So yeah, we'll see well, what happens. Well, I will, uh, I'll do the same thing if you do. I, uh, <laughs> I've rewritten the same first article for my website like 30 times. So I just got to nice. get, I just got to start getting stuff out there and yeah. hope that the people that read it are gracious enough to realize <laughs> that my thought is in process. And I feel like that will help both of us, uh, Right. Help both of us be more productive. But I really absolutely. appreciate you coming on, man. Uh, I'd love Thanks to do this again me. if uh, if you want to. Yeah, absolutely. If there's a yeah, something else to talk about, something else to go over, some other maybe so we can find some more specific convergences, I'd yeah. be down for that. Awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah, absolutely.